Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. Well, good morning and welcome to Bible Center Church. I am Pastor Mike, if we have not had the chance to meet. Thank you, choir. That was wonderful. That was like my favorite song, so I appreciate being a part of that. Uh, my wife and I just got back last night from our 25-year anniversary trip. Uh, we have not had a chance to take a trip like this before, so we headed out west. We've never been past the Mississippi, so we headed into Colorado and explored a bunch of different places, did a bunch of hiking. I've never seen anything quite like it. Uh, if you come back next week, I'll show you some pictures. The first half of the trip, though, my wife was pretty sick with altitude sickness, so I found myself like running on the mountains by myself. And these are big mountains, and you can get lost, and some people don't come back if you're not careful. And um, I'm one of those people that, if I know where I am, I'll, I'll get off trail and explore. But I knew the Rocky Mountains was a bad place to do that. Nevertheless, I do remember there was a point on my second day where I was pretty far into the hike. I was way up high, and I didn't plan on going off trail, but I ended up off trail. Um, there's this thing called scrambling where you crawl on rocks, and it's hard to tell where the trail is and where it's not. And I looked up and I started realizing that there was a lot of bear poop all around me and there was a lot of other stuff around me and I didn't see a trail anymore and there was a dark cloud coming over the peak and I wasn't sure if I was gonna make it back. Um, but I'm here, so I made it back. Um, I had a couple different moments like that. Uh, there was one point where I ran this incline in Manitou Springs. Nope, I planned on running this incline. I ended up walking it because I couldn't run it. But I ran on the way down, and as I was running back down, like you go up the steps and there's a three-mile way to come back down to the bottom. This has never happened to me before, but I was running, and I was looking down because you can blow an angle if you're not looking down. And about as close as this table, I almost ran into a female elk. Like, I, like and it surprised both of us. I was running, and I sensed there was something. I looked up, she looked up, and we both kind of freaked out and ran opposite directions. So uh, we had lots of moments like that, but it was an incredible time. Um, but I'm also so glad to be back. I'm so glad to be with you. Uh, the last two weeks, John has been jumping into giving us direction on where we're going this year and beyond. This morning, we're going to jump into Ephesians 4. So we've been talking about what we're going to do this year for a long time, and today we get started. So if you would, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to spend our whole time in verse 1. Uh, we're going to be challenged with our need for unity as a church. We know that in Christ, we are one. In Jesus, if you've placed your faith in him, you are a part of God's family. But here's the hard part, is sometimes we forget we're family, or we just don't treat each other like family. So we're going to need to push ourselves. We're going to need to ask ourselves some hard questions. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, the word of God is going to push us in several ways. Uh, we're first going to get challenged with this, with the fact that what you believe must translate into how you live. So we're going to ask that question. Does what you believe truly translate into how you live your day-to-day -day life and how you treat people? Uh, Paul then is going to challenge us with a plea to make a decision, to stop where we're going, assess, and make a decision. And then that decision should encourage us to turn into a lifestyle uh, the decision is to live our life in light of, out of, rooted in this gospel salvation message. Who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us is the starting point of our salvation, but it's also the ongoing point of how we live our life. It should affect our perspective and our actions. Unity can only happen 
when each one of us decide to live this way. When we see one another in light of the gospel, when we see one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus, now and forever, unity becomes a priority. So that's part of the call to us, is that we need to play a role in this unity. Now, it's grounded in our salvation, is preserved by the Holy Spirit, but each one of us have a role to play in unity. Each one of us are supposed to put some effort forth into this unity of the body of Christ, of the church. This effort will include challenging and perhaps changing some of our priorities. How do you know what someone truly values? Like, how do you know that someone truly values something? I remember back when I was personal training full-time, I would have people all the time come in, sit across from the table from me when I first meet them, and they would say, Trainer Mike, I'm ready to lose weight and be healthy. I look back at them, I say, that's terrific. So here's some things we're going to have to talk about. How often can you come into the gym? How can we increase your movement? How can we decrease your calories and increase your water? These are some of the things we have to do as a starting point to becoming healthy and losing the weight you want to lose. And here would be the response I would get all the time. Well, I'm really busy. I don't really like the gym. Um, I have to go to lunch every day because of work, so I just have to get a burger and fries, and water doesn't taste good. So what did I learn about that person? They didn't truly value wanting to lose weight and get healthy. So when we truly value something, we're willing to make some changes. We're willing to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, I'm willing to do what is necessary to make this happen. It's when we truly value something. So unity can't be something we just talk about. It can't be something we just say we value. We as a church and each of us as individuals need to actually change things that are necessary so that we together can be unified. When we talked about our theme for the year, the theme is God's glorious church. Our unity is about his glory. It's not about us. So it needs to be a value and a priority. We should care about our deep connection with one another. We should care about areas where, we have, where we're disgruntled and we're hurting one another because our unity brings our God glory. God's glorious church should be a unified church. So as we go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, the first word of that verse is the word, therefore. I would suggest to you that this is the biggest therefore in Ephesians. It's one of the biggest therefores in all of the New Testament. What the therefore is teaching us is that everything that has just been talked about in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are the foundation or the basis for everything Paul's about to say in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. And the message, the message that you find in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is the message of salvation found in Jesus. As a starting point for unity, for probably several people in this room, your first step is to hear the message of salvation found in Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. Someone is saved by grace. Grace is the fact that Jesus did something on your behalf. You and I have sinned and broken our relationship with God. But Jesus stepped into that brokenness. He stepped in and bore the weight and the punishment of that sin on our behalf. 
and he offers us salvation. That's the free gift, it's the grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Well, what is the faith in? What am I required to believe? Romans tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So God provides this incredible gift, the salvation through Jesus, but the salvation comes through believing in him. So for some of you today, your first step in truly valuing unity is by valuing Jesus and knowing Jesus. If that's a decision you've never made, if you've never placed your faith in him, this is a moment where you can do it right now. While you're sitting in your seat, you can pray and talk to Jesus and say, you are Lord. You've been raised from the dead. You died on my behalf for my sake. I receive your forgiveness and your free gift, your grace. If that's something you wanna talk about, at the end of every service, we're gonna provide an opportunity for you. We have a prayer team that's here at the end of each service. There'll be someone over here during, by this first window, and someone over here by this first window. At the end of the service, just make your way over. Have a conversation. They would love to talk to you about this decision to make Jesus the center of your life, to make the decision to be saved, to receive this grace, to say, I place my faith in you, Jesus. Because everything that we're going to talk about is grounded and founded in this salvation, this message of salvation, which is the gospel. So for those of you who know Jesus, Jesus doesn't only save you, he promises and commits to transforming you. He doesn't save you and leave you. He saves you and changes you. So Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is how he then transforms and changes us. So the therefore is teaching that what we believe should dictate how we live. Our belief must translate into behavior. For the unity of the church is built on the gospel. Our ability to function as a family and to view one another correctly is built on what Jesus did for us, the gospel. So as we go a little deeper into chapter four, verse one, uh, we learn that Paul is calling us to something. It says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord. So Paul in Ephesians 4.1 says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Paul, who's writing from a prison in Rome, says that he is going to implore them. Now, here's what I expected. I expected to look up the word implore because when you're getting ready for a sermon, you look up the different words, you make sure you understand how they work and how they fit together. And I thought the word implore would be a command. It's actually not a command. It's a plea. It's a strong request. It's a desire. It's an exhortation. It's an encouragement. It's in the context of a friendship. A relationship, a command is something that can just go from a general you know, to someone in the army and just be, you do this, and you say, yes, sir, and you do it, whether you care about them or not. That's not what he's doing here. The word implore and the type of word that it is is saying, because I love you, I want you to do this. My daughter's name is Lexi. It'd be like me looking at Lexi and saying, honey, I would love it if you didn't text that guy so much. I know you like him, but I think he's bad news. Hey, she's almost 17, I'm not gonna take her phone from her, I'm not gonna stop her from texting people, but I'm going to encourage her, I'm going to implore her, I'm going to beg her 
to not keep texting this guy because it might be bad for her. And because she knows I love her, she may choose to stop. So there's a relationship there. Paul does the same thing in the book of Philemon. He's good friends with this guy named Philemon, and he has a request for him. In verses eight and nine of Philemon, he says this, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. So he's talking to Philemon. He says, I have the confidence in Christ to order you, to command you to do something. So he could. And in Ephesians 4.1, he could command us to do something. It says, but rather, for love's sake, I appeal to you, speaking to Philemon. That's the same word being used here. He, for love's sake, is appealing to us to live in a certain way because he loves us, because he has a connection with us. So Paul is pleading with them. Paul is pleading with us to prioritize a certain way to live. He puts a decision before us, and then he encourages us. He implores us. He begs us to live in this banner. Let's go back to the verse. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk, to walk in the manner worthy of the calling with, his, with which you have been called. So he's imploring them to walk. Now, when I saw the word to walk, I assumed that would be like this active verb, like I'm going to encourage you to continuously keep acting like this. It's not that kind of a verb. So when you go into this, what you learn is that the idea to walk is actually a moment in time. He's saying, I'm pleading with you to stop the direction you're going, to consider where you are, and to make a decision in a moment of time to do something differently. It's a moment in time kind of verb. Paul is pleading and imploring the Ephesians and you and I to stop for a moment, to think, to consider, to reset their feet and their eyes in a particular direction. It's a moment in time decision. Now, we might have to have that moment in time a couple times throughout our life, of course, but he's saying, stop, consider, change. So that's what we're gonna need to do. As we're asking questions about how we're doing when it comes to unity and walking in light of the gospel, in light of our salvation, sometimes we're gonna just need to stop and ask ourselves, how are we really doing? and then change direction to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, a manner worthy of our calling. Let's go back to the verse again. You're gonna hear it several times this morning. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, the calling so if he's imploring and encouraging us to walk a certain way, to stop and to make a decision to go a certain direction, but we don't understand where we're going, it's not helpful. He's saying, walk in a manner, live in a manner worthy of your calling. So what is this calling? First off, calling is a noun. It's a thing. Secondly, it's a thing that we are given. It's not something achieved. It's not something we earn. Our calling is given to us by God himself. The thing that has been given is forgiveness and salvation in Christ. Another word for calling would be gospel. 
Live your life in the manner worthy of your calling, the gospel, the salvation you received in Jesus. All of those things are saying the same thing. If we look back through Ephesians, calling is comparable to the concept of choosing. Chapter one, verse four points to our calling. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Just as he chose us, this idea of him choosing us is the same idea of him calling us. It's a, it's a him thing. We respond in faith, but God is actively calling and choosing his people. And we're called to respond in faith to this incredible grace. So our calling equals the salvation we've been given in the gospel. Our calling equals the salvation we've been given in the gospel. Now this turns into a decision that becomes a lifestyle. A decision that becomes a lifestyle. In the verse, I want you to notice the connection between to walk and calling. We're called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So the gospel or the calling is the foundation. And then the way we think, the way we behave, the way we treat one another must come out of the truth and the realities of the gospel. It's kind of like the picture of a tree. A tree, as a tree grows, its roots go deeper and deeper into the dirt. And from that dirt, it derives all of the nutrients necessary to grow. It creates its foundation. Its strength comes from its rootedness in the dirt. As a Christian, your rootedness must come from being deeply and profoundly connected to the gospel, to your salvation at all times. And that's not just passively. It's not like, oh, I made that decision when I was nine. Now I just live my life. It's an ongoing, active knowledge of your connection to the gospel. You think about it, it impacts you, it changes you. So when you sing, how great thou art, like it means something to you. When Christ shall come, and as the verse goes on, and hopefully there's a tear and there's something in your heart that you think about him coming back, there's, there's a connection between you and the gospel right now, today. It's an ongoing, forever thing for the Christian. Now, this idea of living out of the gospel, being rooted in the gospel, it sounds good, but practically, how do we live that out? How does this turn into something that creates a foundation for unity? What I'd like to do is talk through our perspective and our actions. I think we have to look at how we perceive the things around us and then what we do with our relationships and our conversations and our words and our lives. So we're going to jump into that. First, it starts with our perspective. We must learn how to live our lives through the lens of the gospel. I got this prescription seven years ago. I've worn these glasses four times. This is gonna be number five, I think, right here. But the idea is you actually have to put something on. Wow. But when I put these on, everything looks different. Like, I feel like I'm going to fall. Like, everything looks different. And when it comes to the gospel and perspective, like, we actually have to have the gospel in front of us so we see everything through it. That's gonna make me sick, so I'm gonna take those off. But, but that's what it should be like. Like, am I seeing the world around me through the realities of the gospel? 
And when it comes to the realities of the gospel, there's some present realities, and then there's some future, yet-to-come realities. When it comes to present realities, there's a couple of things that everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus has. Number one, you have full access to God. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, Jesus has provided a way for you to have full access to God at all times. You've also received full forgiveness from God. You have full access to him because you've received full forgiveness from him. That's the world that you live in. That's the perspective that you should always have. I always can go into my dad's presence. I always have an audience with him. He never pushes me away. There's never a sin too big, too dirty, too yucky, too nasty, where I can't still walk into the throne room and have a discussion about how I need to grow and how much he loves me and everything that I need. The third thing, full access to God, full forgiveness from God. Three, is full adoption into God's family. Full adoption into God's family. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you are fully and completely a part of God's family, which means the people around you who have also placed their faith in Jesus, those are your brothers and sisters in Christ, like it or not. Whether you want them to be or not, you are family, now and forever. That's the perspective. So when you're frustrated with someone in the church, if there's that annoying person in your group, if there's that person you just don't want to sit close to, realize you're talking about a brother or a sister. Putting that perspective on helps you treat people in the right way. So we have to see each other through this lens. So if you have full access to God, you have to remember that your brother and sister in Christ also has full access to God. You're not better than them. If you've received full forgiveness from God, your brother and sister in Christ has also received full forgiveness from God. Wow, who are we to hold a grudge or bitterness against another? When we know that that brother or sister has full forgiveness, yet we don't give full forgiveness, that perspective changes the way I see them not to mention the fact that they are also my brother and my sister forever. You have some people in your family who don't know Jesus. They may not be your forever family, even though you're, they're your earthly family. Around you right now is your forever family. That means something. It changes your perspective in how you treat one another. There's also future realities and future hopes. So there's some present tense things, but then there's some yet to come things. In Ephesians 1.18, talking about our calling, Paul says this, he prays this. I pray that the eyes of your heart, do you have eyes in your heart? No, but the idea is that your soul, your heart, your emotions, your intellect would be aware of this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know the hope of his calling, the hope of his calling. I'm praying that you not only know what's happening now when it comes to your salvation, but the hope that is yet to come because of your salvation. He is praying for an ability to see the unseen. He's praying for the ability to touch the untouchable, to have a living hope, believing and seeing with spiritual eyes the culmination and the completion of salvation that is still yet to come. It's still yet to come. There's, we're saved now, but there's so much still coming. We're already saved, 
but we have yet to experience all the benefits of that salvation, which creates what? Hope, a wellspring of life and hope in the believer. So what is yet to be? Presently, we have full access to God, but one day we're in the actual physical presence of God. Faith becomes sight. Part of the future reality is that we don't need these because we see him face to face. Another future reality is that we are freed from sin, temptation, struggle, guilt, shame, fear. It's simply gone in the presence of God forever. That's a future reality. The third future reality is that we will be united together with one another as the bride of Christ forever. Right now, we know that we're family, but in eternity, we will experience it in a very different way. We will not only be the church, but the bride of Christ forever. There'll be a uniqueness in how we're interconnected with one another in that day. So that is also yet to come. Now, these future realities, if we think about them and put that lens on, then it tells us a couple things. You and I must see that there's more to you than just being an individual. You are designed and fashioned and made to be a part of a family. That's how you are designed. Imagine yourself as a puzzle piece. You have a little knob, you have a little hole, and you got another knob, and you got more knobs than others. But you, you know what I'm saying? Like, but all of you are designed to be interconnected with other people. And without the other people, you're not fully who God's fashioned and designed you to be. It's part of how we are made. All of these things about the future point to this incredible hope that is yet to come. And this should fill us and motivate us and empower us, even in the hard moments. At the end of John 13, the beginning of John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to return to the Father. And the disciples respond with being overwhelmed, with fear and anxiety. Jesus looks at them and he knows that their hearts are troubled. So in that moment, what does Jesus do? What does Jesus say? In John 14, he looks at them while their hearts are overwhelmed, while they're anxious. And he says, believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will also be. So in their anxiety, in feeling overwhelmed, with a troubled heart, Jesus looks at them and discusses the future reality of the gospel as a source of hope in the moment of despair. He says, when I go, I'm not leaving forever. I'm going to prepare a place for you. The world was created in seven days. Jesus, this is an ongoing verb, is continuing to work on the place that he's going to take us to. And Jesus is there right now. And he's not going to just stay there. He's going to come back and he's going to receive us and take us to be with him forever. That's a future reality of the gospel. When it talks about living our life in a manner worthy of the gospel, it means that we live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back to get us 
to embrace us and take us to be with him forever. It makes momentary troubles and heartache and brokenness and pain. It just is a different way of viewing it when you see the light of eternity of being with Jesus and one another forever. It's part of that future reality. So our calling, that is the gospel, our salvation, functions as our perspective. Our salvation is our motivation, and the gospel should impact our priorities. Unity and the way we treat one another becomes so important in light of present and future realities of the gospel. Okay, so we've talked about how we should view our salvation presently. We've talked a little bit about how we should view our salvation in terms of future realities. Let's take a moment and talk about how we should view one another in light of our calling, how we view one another in light of the gospel and the reality of our salvation. You are now a part of an everlasting family, a forever family. You are a part of something bigger and greater than yourself. Your decisions, your involvement, your lack of involvement doesn't just affect you. It affects every single person in here. Whether you're leaning in and being involved or you're leaning out and not being involved with the church, your family, the body, the bride of Christ, God's glorious forever family has impact on everything. You may not feel it. You may not always see it. You may not know it, but that's how we're designed and that is true. And I don't say that to, gosh, my, my goal there is not to like give you guilt or shame if you're kind of just showing up and attending. That's not my desire. But I want you to know you're missing out. You're not living out God's design. And when you're not fully living out God's design, you are missing out on joy and happiness and moments of incredible pleasure and connection and intentionality that brings glory to God and God's glorious church. I don't want you to miss out. I want you to lean in and to be involved because it matters. It changes everything. You no longer exist by yourself and you no longer exist for yourself. A couple things to consider. No one is better than another. When it comes to the family of God, those who have placed their faith in Jesus, no one is better than another. My sin stinks as much as yours. Your sin stinks as much as the person beside you. We are on the same level when it comes to that. None of us showed up into God's throne room with something to offer. All of us showed up with empty hands in need. No one is better than another. So we ought not treat one another that way. No one has it all together. No one has it all together. Outward appearance of having it together does not mean that someone has it together. I spent years as a trainer working with people. I was kind of a luxury item. They, they drove the right car. They lived in the right community. Their kids went to the right schools. They wore all the right clothes. There is no difference between how broken someone is who has a lot, who has nothing. They're the same. I've been there, I've had the conversations. All of us are in need, all of us are broken. And all of us are on a journey. So some of you are farther out in the journey. Some of you are just getting started. 
Can you imagine what it feels like for someone who's just getting started on the journey and to look up ahead to someone you're looking up to and for that person to look back and to judge you and to criticize you and to put you down when you're just trying to put one foot in front of the other? So if you've been in this journey for a while, your role and your design within this family of God, this body of Christ, this movement toward unity is to look back to the person who's just starting the journey and to pull them along, to encourage them, to help them, to pray for them, to jump into their life. It's not to point back and criticize and judge. Yeah, they've got work to do, but so do you. So part of this is knowing that we're on a journey. Another piece is that everyone will have a unique story written under the sovereign hand of God. Everyone will have a unique story. You have a set of temptations and struggles that the person beside you does not have. You have a set of desires and passions and skills that the person beside you does not have. You will have a unique set of circumstances in your life that the person beside you will not have. You might deal with death and despair, and the person beside you might deal with sickness and losing friends. Like, each of you are going to have a different story. And because each of you have a unique story, instead of experiences, and you're different than the person beside you, oh, let's give each other a little grace. We have full access to God. We've been fully forgiven by God. We're one family together. In light of that, offer some grace to the person beside you. How good would it be to provide encouragement rather than criticism? To first hug before you scold Let's treat each other the way we should in light of the gospel, in light of the fact that we are family, we are one. So just be slow in how you treat one another. Think, be thoughtful, be kind, be gentle, be humble. You're talking to a child of God. Know that dad is watching as you talk to that child of God. One more thing to throw out there is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. All of us who have placed our faith in Jesus are at the foot of the cross. And the ground at the foot of the cross is completely level. No one's closer and no one's farther away. No one's standing on a hill and no one's standing in a ditch. At the foot of the cross, it's level. All of us come to the foot of the cross in need with nothing to offer. Do you realize that you've done nothing to even earn forgiveness for a single sin you've ever committed? There's nothing you can do. No matter how hard you've worked, no matter how many good things you've done, you've never even made up for just a single sin that you've, caught, that you've done in your life. Not one. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that includes the Christian who's struggling with despair or addiction or pain or the Christian who serves in the nursery every week and leads two Bible studies. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. So it's the starting point to how we treat one another. You're eye to eye with the person you're looking at. You don't have to look up at someone. You don't have to look down at someone. You're eye to eye. They might be farther in the journey. They may have something to offer, but it's still level ground at the foot of the cross. It's the starting point for our unity. There's no path forward until we live in a manner worthy of the calling. In other words, live in light of this gospel, which is even ground at the foot of the cross. It's our starting point for the entire discussion on unity this fall. So know that about yourself. Know that about the people around you. So 
thinking about this, knowing this, means that we look to Jesus with thankfulness and praise. But then we look to one another with compassion, with commitment, and with encouragement. So when it comes to action, how do we live this perspective out with one another? Couple thoughts. Number one, we implore one another. Paul implored and pleaded with us to live our life in light of the gospel. So when you see a brother or sister not living their life out in light of the gospel, plead with them in light of a relationship. God's saying, I love you so much that I want you to live this way for your good and for my glory. So when you're with someone who's struggling, do the same thing. Because I love you so much, I'm going to encourage you, I'm gonna plead with you to live your life in light of the salvation for your good and for God's glory and for the unity of the church. We do it together. This unity thing, we do it together. Grabbing a book on unity and going to the corner and reading is not as good as grabbing a book on unity, grabbing your friends and talking about it together. This is a process we do together. Also, some of us are gonna to have to take some of our me stuff and put it down so we have space and energy to work on some of the we stuff. We have to put down some of the me stuff to have the ability to work on some of the we stuff. We is greater than me. You have to think that way. Look at your life. Is it all about me or is it all about we? You have to know some people by name. You're gonna to have to know some people by name. You hear us talk about groups you have to know some people by name. If they don't know you and you don't know them, you're probably not contributing to unity in the church. If there aren't a group of people that actually know you and there aren't some people that you really know, you have leaned out and all of us are being affected. We have started multiple new groups. There is room for you. There is a group for you. Next week, we have a big group starting for high school and middle school parents. If that's you, I want you there because I want you to be known and to know others. That's when we become interconnected. That's when we become interdependent. So we need to make unity a priority. We need to make it a value. And like we learned at the beginning, if it's a value, it means we're willing to change who we are and what we do for the sake of that value. The unity of the church is built on the gospel. And you and I need gospel perspective and you and I need to live out of the realities of the gospel in such a way that it impacts the way we view and treat one another. We plead with one another to prioritize unity as one family living out of, rooted in the gospel, our calling. If we make it our priority, if it becomes the culture here at Bible Center that we are just unified and we're not gonna fight for me, we're gonna fight for we, what happens is God begins to receive much glory from that unity. The world begins to watch us and see his love in action. Lives are changed. People come to know him as Lord and Savior because we fight for we. This doesn't happen without his help. So as I pray, I want you to also be praying for you, that God would show you your areas where you have to put down some me, that God would show you some areas where instead of having a pointing hand, you extend your arms. What is your next step? So we're gonna pray 
and then we're gonna prepare our hearts and take communion. Let's pray. Father, this is your church. And you've called us as your children, as brothers and sisters to be united. And that unity doesn't come from us. We're not the source of the unity. You are Jesus and the work you've done for us on the cross. And Holy Spirit, convict us and work in us to show us where we each need to grow to be more interconnected, more interdependent on one another and on you. Bring glory to yourself in your church. We ask in Christ's name, amen. For more information, visit us at biblecenterchurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center. 